it's t it's time to start. So if I could get everybody's attention and when we were in Oxford, we worshiped at uh, St. Ebb's Anglican Church in downtown Oxford and our, our rector, David Fletcher, would, would routinely say during the announcements, well, time marches on. And he, be, he became known for that as kind of a joke, but it, it's, a, it's a lovely phrase, time marches on. So here we are in the fifth of six classes um, in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And as is my custom, I'm going to try to tell you what I want to do and then pray and then do it. So what we have is two more classes, and we have a huge number of chapters. So since I didn't get to chapter 7 last time, I have to do chapter 7. Then tonight we have 8, 9, 10. And so your homework assignment for next time is 11, 12, 13, 14. And I realize in saying that, it's going to end up being a very much of a bird's eye view of the book. You could easily do this book for at least half a year, if not a year. Um, and if it does nothing but whet your appetite for plunging deeper into the book, so much the better. But tonight's class is a particular challenge because if you did the homework for last time, you probably realized what a lot of people point out about The Great Divorce, which is that chapter 9 is the longest chapter. It's also the most important chapter, and it's not like any of the other chapters. So we have to pay special attention to chapter 9 because Lewis meets his lifelong hero and mentor, George MacDonald, who guides him to the right understanding of all these things. And if he's going to put a character of that importance in the midst of the story, we better pay attention to it. So we're going to have to give great attention to chapter 9, which means that you get even less ch chance at 7, 8, and 10. So I'm going, to give, I'm going to give it my best shot, but we're going to meet a hard-bitten ghost who I didn't get to last time. Then we're going to meet what I call a very vain, self-conscious ghost. Then we're going to have a long discussion with George MacDonald, his mentor. And then we're going to meet in chapter 10 the underappreciated and undernoticed wife who has been propping up her husband's life and career with unbounded energy and determination. And uh, we'll see what you make of all that by the end. So everybody with me, we're going to start in chapter 7, and we're going to go 8, 9, 10, but we're going to spend the bulk of the time tonight on chapter 9, and you, and you are undoubtedly going to have questions about chapter 9. In fact, if you didn't have questions about chapter 9, I will be surprised and just even disappointed, because it's very hard to fully take in, especially the first time. All right, everybody together? The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you that you are the God who has chosen to speak to us out of the silence of eternity. Thank you for your word and your truth and your light and your goodness. Thank you for the truth, beauty, and goodness of creation that reflects your own truth, beauty, and goodness. And thank you for this book that reminds us of the importance of the truth, beauty, and goodness, not simply of this life, but of the life to come. Please open our hearts as we study this book and give us a vision for the next life that mightily impinges in our perspective in this one and helps us to lead better lives as more faithful disciples to you who are more heavenly minded so we can do more earthly good. Please lead us in this class by your spirit and use this class to build your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so first of all, chapter 7, The Hard-Bitten Ghost, and you're definitely going to need your book so just to remind you of all these characters, by the way, I should also say, just in passing, in chapter 9, in addition to all the other vistas that are in chapter 9, there, there's actually a section where it's almost like he's speed dating ghosts, and you get like five ghosts in a row, and they're all these little mini portraits. So you get lots of ghosts, uh, but at least in these chapters, we get them one at a time, so we don't have to speed date yet. And this, this particular gentleman comes after the waterfall, and Lewis wanders downstream and runs into this ghost, who is described as a lean, hard-bitten man with an air of reliability. And he says to Lewis, are you going back to the gray town? And Lewis says, I haven't decided yet. But the ghost says, oh no, I'm going back. I've seen all that there is to see. It's all propaganda. There was never any real chance of staying and since you can't eat the fruit or drink the water or even walk on the grass, what's the point? A human being couldn't live in such conditions. 
He says that he's traveled extensively on earth and everywhere was just the same. And uh, for those of you who noticed, he actually says he, he's, he's been to Salt Lake City, but he actually says he's been to Peking, which is Beijing for you and I. But, but it's pretty unusual for a person in the 1940s to have been to Beijing. That sounds like a pretty impressive big deal. But he, for him, it's all routine. It's all the same. And it doesn't offer anything that's interesting. These are all advertising stunts by the same people. He even sees the gray town in the same way, disappointing with no really interesting people. Lewis says he prefers the heavenly country and believes you can get acclimatized to it if you stay there. But the ghost says the same old lie is the one that Lewis is buying into. And that is, it's all the same. And, and it's not true what he's been told his whole life, which is being disciplined and persevering would lead to a better life. Not so. They, and this is one of the recurring themes of the book, did you notice? There's, all the, there's always this worry about they. They are running everything and could rescue people if they could and they wanted to, but instead they prefer them to be miserable. So that's a summary of the chapter very quickly. Now, what I want to do for just a moment, because we have to treat this so quickly, is I want to say a number of things about the themes in chapter 7, because every single chapter in this book is loaded with contemporary significance. So first of all, if you're following along, what I want you to notice is pessimism becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. What was Pekin like, Lewis says? Nothing to it, just one darn wall inside another just a trap for tourists. I've been pretty well everywhere. Niagara Falls, the pyramids, Salt Lake City, the Taj Mahal. What was it like, says Lewis, not worth looking at. They're all advertisement stunts. They're all run by the same people. It's a combine, you know, a world combine that just takes an atlas and decides where they'll have a site. So are all the paths of those who forget God, says Job 8. And the hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile and whose trust is a spider web. If you expect <clears throat> to be disappointed, it results in disappointment. One of the characters I want to make sure to mention is the character of the one talented uh, servant in the parable of the talents. You remember him? He's, he's quite significant, but he doesn't often get noticed because usually focused on the five and the two and they do great and they're kind of models for stewardship, and we're in stewardship season, and so on and so forth. But if you remember, the one talented guy, he, he takes his talent, and he doesn't do anything with it except bury it in order to keep it safe. But what, what's interesting for our purposes is the reason that he states in the story that he did what he did. And he's a cynic and a pessimist, just like the well-traveled man that we meet in our story. And here's what he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. One of the things I keep in my files is something called Chisholm's effect, which is, if you don't know it, the basic laws of frustration, mishap, and delay. Do you know the Chisholm effect? You need to learn about it. The Chisholm effect states that the first law of human interaction is this, if anything can go wrong, it will. The corollary is, if anything just can't go wrong, it will anyway. The second law is, when all things are going well, something will go wrong. The corollary is, when things just can't get any worse, they will. The second corollary is, anytime things appear to be going better, you have overlooked something. The third law is purposes as understand, understood by the purposer will be judged otherwise by others. I love that one. The corollary is if you explain anything so clearly that nobody can possibly misunderstand, somebody will. <laughs> if you do something which you are sure will meet with everybody's approval, somebody won't like it. Procedures devised to implement the purpose won't quite work. And finally, corollary four, no matter how long or how many times you explain, it turns out that no one is, in fact, listening. That's from um, the Chisholm Effect in Motive magazine in 1963. And one of the things that you'll see sometimes hanging in people's wall is nothing will be attempted if all possible objections must first be overcome. 
I could do a whole teaching on that just in the area of stewardship. Uh, have you ever been on a committee in a parish with the money people? You do not want to talk about vision with the money people because there will always be an objection. There's never enough money. What you want if you want to talk about stewardship and vision is you want the vision people first, and then when you decide what to do, you get the money people to tell you how to raise the money and what to do with the money and how to manage the money. That's great. But they will always come up with one more objection, and you need somebody to lift up their eyes and see. That's just to illustrate the point, though, that if you're, if you, if you're the kind of person that's aim, aiming for nothing, you're sure to hit it. Any, any road will get there if you don't know where you're going. And it's, it's, it's an important part of life that the Bible actually has a lot to, to, to teach us about. This man is a cynic, and cynicism and complaining make it impossible to experience joy. It's a very big theme in the Bible. It's a huge theme in the wilderness wandering, complaining, if you remember right. You remember how quickly they lose perspective? One of my favorite sections is, it's not that long that they've been out there, and they say, you know, this is terrible. Take us back to Egypt. It was better there. And you want to just, you know, bring, run, run, run your hands down over the banister and grab them and say, better there? You were slaves. <laughs> the, the, the Egyptians were grinding you into dust. But they've convinced themselves that the things are so risky and they've been complaining so often, they've completely lost perspective. <clears throat> In his book, Don't Squeeze the Christian, which is a great title, I think, Scott Cerno reflects on the danger of cynicism, which he calls, and I really like this, the frostbite of the soul. And he contrasts complaining and cynicism with the living hope which we find in 1 Peter, which is something that we are to be characterized. Not simply people of hope, but people of living hope, and that's a very deliberate choice of adjective. And here's what he writes, cynicism kills in the manner of the frostbite. The only symptom is a deadening numbness, and even Christians are often tinged with this frostbite. Callousness and doubt numb us to life and joy. We find ourselves leaving the triumphant lyrics of the old hymns on the church doorstep because they appear hopelessly out of step with the world waiting outside. Our problem is not that we've been taught to question our faith, but rather that we've been taught to reject any answers. Doubt can be a state of mind, but it can also be a way of life. And we could spend a huge amount of time with this, but can I just tell you, in the world of social media, you're in a culture that loves to complain. And, and the, the heart of the Christian life is the opposite of that. I'll, I'll have more to say about that if we have enough time at the end. But the, but the Christian life is characterized by gratitude and an openness to who God is and how much he gives. And if you look at Jesus the overriding characteristic of his ministry is his shocking generosity at every possible place. And the, the disciples that he spends all that time with, what he's constantly telling them is basically, lift up your eyes to see. And, and what Satan wants to do is to deaden you and get you, get you to look down. So to quote Mary Oliver, whom I'm quite fond of quoting, I've quoted to you many times before, the, the great poet, she, right, she says, Pay attention, be astonished, tell somebody. Remember that? Now, that, see, that's got, that is the antidote to complaining. So you can't, if you're looking down and you're grumbling, you can't pay attention, you can't be astonished, and you're not going to tell anybody except what you're complaining about. You'll be glad to tell them that. But the whole, the whole of the Christian life is, is on a different plane and this guy, what's so striking about him is he's really had an abundant life. I mean, in the 40s, to have been to Niagara Falls, Salt Lake City, and what you and I call Beijing, for starters, that's pretty, pretty amazing in terms of the abundance of his life. And it's a disaster for him. It's all the same. It's all insipid. It's all run by a cabal. It's all a conspiracy. It's all an advertising stunt. Number three. Believing the purpose of life is to be entertained leads only to despair. Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is brilliant Lewis at his very best. And again, stunning that he wrote it in the 40s because uh, seeking entertainment out of life in the 40s is almost a ludicrous concept in itself given all that was getting on. But did you catch this section of the chapter? It's up to the management to find something that doesn't bore us, isn't it? It's their job. 
Why should we do it for them? We never get a new management. You always find the same old ring. I know all about dear, kind mommy coming up to your bedroom and getting all she wants to know out of you. But you always found out later that she and father were, on the sa- were part of the same firm, really. Didn't we find that both sides in all the wars were run by the same armament firms or the same firm which is behind the Jews and the Vatican and the dictators and the democracies and all the rest of it? All the stuff up here is run by the same people as this town. They're just laughing at us. That's straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Come now, Solomon says, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, all was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? And then you have Luke 8, the parable of the sower. Do you remember this section? And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by, do you remember the phrases? The cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Now again, I have to not launch, but one of the books that I want to make sure you're aware of because it's so essential is Neil Postman's book written in 1985 which was nothing short of a prophetic masterpiece at the time and is more relevant by the day. And here's the title of his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. 1985, he wrote that book. Postman's groundbreaking polemic was about the corrosive effects of television and advertising on our politics and public discourse before smartphones, Before all that, what happens, he says, when media and politics become forms of entertainment and our world begins more and more to look like Orwell's 1984? And what he says is, it it takes you into a world where it's all about entertainment, it's all about the customer, it's all about making the customer happy in terms of keeping them juiced up. And so you get this uh, image of, uh, from Star Wars, you know, Java the Hutt, remember him? just this big mouth, and, and all, the, all he does is eat. But the point is, that's sort of our culture, except what, what it is is just a big mouth of entertainment, and then the only question is, what form of entertainment are you going to choose? And some people like to be entertained by Fox News and CNN and so on and so forth. Some people like to be entertained by sports. But if you look at somebody like Pascal, probably one of the most brilliant minds ever lived, the great mathematician, who is also a theologian, I hope you know, but in his Pensées, which is his best book that he ever wrote, what he says is the chief problem of life is distraction. Life is very serious. You're going through it very quickly. You're going to eternity. You're not going to live very long. Uh, life is a gift. Mortality is very, very real. And what you need to do is not get distracted. And the whole of life to Pascal is people who are in the midst of a deadly serious business, which is the life and the life before God and the judgment of God, who are constantly being distracted. And that's us. And the way that we're being distracted more than any other in the current culture is entertainment. It's just a question of what kind of entertainment. It'll it'll preach. This guy will preach. Can you feel his passivity? It's it's just, it's shocking. He's been to (laughs) Beijing in the 40s. And it's, no, it's just all the same. I mean, I haven't ever been to Beijing. I have been to Niagara Falls. I, I've seen the pictures. They're not the same. They weren't the same in the 40s. You want to take the guy and say, but the, but the point is with that level of cynicism and that level of focus on entertainment and his taste and his rights and his ideas of what is good and entertaining and fun and on and on, he gets to be the one who's the arbiter. And he says, well, it's all the same. It's a, it's a devastating attitude, and it's one that Scripture points out is particularly pernicious for the Christian. So, third theme is, believing that the purpose of life is to be entertained leads only to despair, and also isn't true. And can you, I mean, I sometimes say to people, if you ever want to test out a thought and see if it's a Christian thought, ask yourself this, would Jesus or Paul say it? You ever, you ever thought about that? It's actually quite a good thing. So, so here's Jesus, and he shows up in the gospel as he said, I'm here to entertain you. <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Right? It, it doesn't work. So here, here's another one. It is what it is. <laughs> Jesus would never say that, neither would Paul. That's not in the text. 
I could go on all day. But, but the point is, if you want to test a thought to see if it's a Christian thought, ask yourself if Jesus or St. Paul would ever say it. I just can't see St. Paul, you know, showing up to an early church which knew him as public enemy number one because his picture was on the post office because he was the lead persecutor of the Christians. I can't him, see him showing up and say, uh, let me entertain you. <laughs> Let, let's, ha- let's have a game contest. You do your game, I'll do my game. Let's see who wins. It just doesn't work that way. Number four, blaming others for everything results in bitter inertia. Did you catch this blame shifting that's going on with this guy? There seems to be, I'm quoting from the chapter again, some idea that if one stays here, one would get, well, solider. Grow acclimatized, says Lewis. I know all about that, said the ghost. Same old lie. Did you see if the official version were true, these chaps would attack and sweep the town out of existence? That's what they do. They got the strength. If they wanted to rescue us, they could do it. But obviously, the last thing they want is to end their so-called war. Their whole game depends on keeping it going. Not only is he stuck being entertained, not only is he stuck, stuck in cynicism and the frostbite of the soul, but everybody else is responsible, not him. <laughs> and it's gotten to the point where he can actually say that really, if, if heaven were really heaven, everybody in heaven would go to the, the, the great town of hell and sweep everybody out. But they don't want to do it because they want to perpetuate their so-called war. It's just a game that keeps on going. This guy is stuck in inertia. He's stuck in being entertained. He's stuck in cynicism. And not only is he stuck in all those things, but he has no responsibility. The blame is all externalized. If we had time, I'd take you to the parable of Dives and Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. But if you remember the story really well, part of what's so powerful about the story is He's still ordering the poor man to do his bidding. He's dead. (laughs) He's in hell, and he doesn't even tell the guy his name. Tell him to bring me some water so that I have my tongue feel better in these flames. He's still doing what he was... He doesn't even realize where he is or who he is or what the consequences are. He's made absolutely no change. He's exactly someone who's stuck in the bitter inertia that this guy is stuck in. He's in hell and he has no responsibility. The implication is, it's really the responsibility of the management. If they'd just given him more information, he wouldn't be there. Romans 2 says it this way, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. And then you have this incredibly scary phrase, in Acts chapter 8 of, of Saul. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And there's a phrase in the book of Hebrews. The phrase is the root of bitterness. And that is a very dangerous root, and you don't want it to grow in the garden of your soul. And you run that up against um, the heavenly waterfall that we were talking about last week, and something like Augustine's vision of heaven, Right? And Augustine says, this is at the end of the city of God, so he's done basically a colossal volume of one of the best books ever written about the whole history of the world. And he finishes it by talking about heaven, and then he finishes the section on heaven this way. He says, this is talking about heaven. Think, think, Think of what you make of this. There we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. Let me read it to you again. There we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. That is not a place where you're stuck in bitter inertia. That is a place where you're worshiping. And can I just remind you as we go flying past that every week, brothers and sisters, you are practicing for eternity. You do know that. That's what Eucharist is. You're practicing for eternity. And the thing about that service is it doesn't give you a choice. Lift up your hearts. That's a command to your will. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It doesn't say, if you had a good week. It doesn't say, if you feel like it. It says, let us give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. That's the way the the Psalms appeal to the will. It's a habit that transforms your life. And this guy is the alter ego of that. All right, now, on to chapter 8. 
and what I'm calling the vain, very self-conscious ghost. So now it's very interesting what happens. Lewis is very shaken by this hard-bitten ghost. This cynic really gets to him, and he starts in, his, his thinking gets infected. And all of a sudden, he's really pretty terrified because he's, he has a thought, which is, oh, oh, no, what if this whole trip is nothing but a diabolical exercise to try to fool me into thinking I'm, I'm actually dealing with the possibility of heaven, whereas it's actually just, just an exercise to show me the degree to which I, I, realize, I realize and deserve hell. It's all a trick. And, and not only that, he realizes what the hard-bitten ghost said about the rain. And if you remember, the hard-bitten ghost says the rain could hurt you. So he starts getting worried about the fact that he's in a solid place, and apparently, so far in the narrative, we haven't gotten any sense it's different. He's not very solid. So he's worried about where he is. He's worried about who he can trust. See, this is the problem with spending time with someone who's very cynical. In, unless you're a very unusual person, it infects you. So he starts getting very, very worried about where he is and what the nature of the journey is and who he can trust. Previously, he had assumed the best of his new environment. Now he questions almost everything he sees. Oh, what a surprise. That's what happens when you get stuck in cynical company for too long. But he decides to move toward the trees where he might be safe from the rain. He isn't sure if he should get back on the bus or not, but as he approaches the trees, he sees another ghost. And the ghost is arguing with the spirit, and the spirit claims that he's just trying to help the ghost. But the ghost insists that the spirit is taking advantage of her. And the narrator, Lewis, is in the midst of a crisis. Should he go back to the gray town or stay by the river? On a symbolic level, the narrator's crisis symbolizes the crisis of the Christian skeptic. Should we continue in faith even when things get hard or less certain? Should we return to what's easier? And then the conversation goes on. The ghost explains she's afraid of going to the mountains. And why? Because she doesn't have a solid body. She would be embarrassed if she arrived in the mountains without a body, especially because all these spirits have bodies. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but I hope you notice that some of them have clothes, some of them are naked, but Lewis points out it doesn't matter because the degree to which they're majestic, I mean, they're, they're almost like these, they're almost gods or demigods, the way they're portrayed. I mean, when we meet MacDonald in chapter 9 in just a second, he, he's, he, the way he's portrayed almost reminds me of Gandalf. You know, he's, this, he's this giant, tall figure with his beard, and he looks very wise. It's almost like he's in the presence of this sort of god. Well, she's, she's very clear, whatever else is going on, that these people are very solid, and, and she doesn't have the right equipment, and clearly she needs a solid body. So the ghost sobs and cries and, and, and eventually says, oh, I wish I'd never been born. And the spirit assures the ghost that she'll be able to enter the mountains without a problem. The only obstacle is the ghost's own shame, and she's ashamed of how she looks, and it's very, it's almost darkly comic because one of the things that the ghost points out to her, which I think is one of the funnier parts of chapter 8, is she, she wants a body and he tries as kindly as he can to say, well, among other problems, you're dead. <laughs> so actually, dead people don't have bodies. <laughs> but she can't even hear that. She says, I wish I'd never been born. The only obstacle is her own shame, and you get this great line Shame, the Spirit explains, did you catch this line? Probably the most important line of chapter 8, is like a long, hot drink. It's hard to carry. It's even dangerous in some cases. But it can be very nourished when it's totally consumed. So something about the goodness of shame, which we'll come back to in a second. The ghost is afraid of going to the mountains, a symbol of heaven, because she's afraid of not having a body. So the passage emphasizes how shame and self-hatred can deter souls from worshiping God, and the passage features one of the first female characters in the novel, and I won't go into Lewis's constantly being criticized for his portrayal of female characters. That's one of the themes of Lewis critics. I'm just going to lay it to one side. But what happens in the context of the conversation is the narrator starts getting very invested in the ghost's decision. He finds himself hoping desperately that the ghost will endure the shame of having no body and go with the spirit to the mountains. And toward the end of the chapter, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a question that's left 
up in the air. Will she go or will she not? And the, and the, and the Spirit is making a really compelling case. And you can just feel um, the, the, the language of, of Jesus. Come and see. You know, John's gospel. That's what, all, that's what all the spirits keep saying. Come and see. Actually, the mountains are there. Just keep going. If you just keep going, why don't you, how about just come and see? Uh, but she says, finally, I can't. And the spirit responds by producing a large horn, which he blows through. And at the sound of the horn, you get a, a herd of unicorns. Everybody notice that? Nice low-key Lewis image. There he goes again with his beasts and creatures and talking animals and all the rest. And the narrator along the ghost, along with the ghost tries to run away from the unicorns. And then in the confusion, the narrator loses sight of the ghost. Now, what I want you to notice about this um, woman is very simple, and that is she's, she's a classic example of someone who's obsessed with and consumed with their appearance. It's, a, it's someone who's inescapably intertwined with what the, the tradition calls the sin of vanity. And the thing about this is this is the 40s again. And this is way before the, the, the advertising industry is going to spend billions of dollars and endless time to persuade women that their entire life consists in what they look like. She hasn't been victimized by that. I mean, everything, eyelashes, lipstick, you name it, it all matters. And, and she's completely obsessed with and can't get past the fact that how she looks is who she is. And what I wanted to do for just a moment is I want to tell you a lovely story about somebody in Christian history who's kind of the great antithesis of this. And this is from John Piper. And he, he, he titles this story, Old, Wrinkled, and Beautiful. And part of the reason I like it is because it's back in the 19th century, so it has a kind of a way of getting to us, I think. So he says this. See what you make of this when you think about the sin of vanity and being obsessed with how you look. Evelyn Brand was born in England in 1879 and grew up in a well-to-do British family. She studied at the London Conservatory of Art. She dressed in the finest silks of the day. And then she was resoundingly converted to Christ. She married and went with her husband to minister as missionaries in the Kolai Mailai mountain range in India. After about 10 years, her husband died at the age of 44. By the way, just another aside... uh, Everybody here is not getting out alive. Death is a reality. You do know that until the 20th century, people knew that. (laughs) But because we have modern medical technology, we just tend to forget it. I mean, uh, have you all heard what happened at the early service at Daniel Island? If you haven't, you need to know. So Jonathan's five minutes into his sermon, and all of a sudden you hear, and I mean, this for me, we almost lost our son once. There's a certain sound of a woman's voice who's genuinely terrified and it's unmistakable you cannot manufacture it and one of our parishioners was literally screaming in the back of the church and she thought her husband was having a heart attack five minutes into jonathan's sermon ready set go it was something and uh, i picked up the phone my wife as some of you know is a nurse practitioner and teaches at musc and i said something's wrong run <laughs> That's what I said. Fortunately, I got her. So by the time EMS got there, we had a neurosurgeon, a nurse practitioner, another medical person, and uh, it all ended up being fine. And it actually, as it, as it all turns out, wasn't even a heart episode. But what I wanted to make sure to tell you is what happened to the congregation. So our musician, Jeremy from James Island, I mean, he, he was so shaken. We were all shaken. It was just this f- phenomenally powerful reminder of our own mortality. And it was, it, you just couldn't, you couldn't get away from it. I mean, Jonathan was so flustered, he didn't know what to do. He said, well, let's continue with the prayers. And he came over to me and said, should we continue with the prayers? And I said, I really think we should sing Amazing Grace. And he thought that was a good idea, and we did, which, which was very helpful because it kind of centered us. But what was so powerful was poor Jeremy, who was so overcome by what happened, he actually couldn't find Amazing Grace in the hymnal. This is our music leader. Because he was so flustered by what happened. The point is, you're not going to live forever right? And they knew this in the 19th century because husbands died at 44, a lot of the time, unlike now. She came home broken, beaten down by pain and grief, but after a year's restoration, against all advice, she restored herself and went back to India. 
She poured her life into the hill people, nursing the sick, teaching farming, lecturing about guinea worms, rearing orphans, clearing the jungle, pulling teeth, establishing schools, and spreading the gospel. She lived, are you ready, in a portable hut that was eight feet square for a season that could be taken down, moved, and then put up again. At the age of 67, she fell and broke her hip. Her son, a famous surgeon, encouraged her to retire. She'd already, by that time, experienced a broken arm, several cracked vertebrae, and recurrent malaria. Her response, Paul, you know these mountains. If I leave, who will help the village people? Who will treat their wounds? Who will pull their teeth? And who will teach them about Jesus? When someone comes to take my place, then, and only then, will I retire. And she worked on, I should have you guess, and died at 95. The villagers buried her in a simple cotton sheet that would decompose and be part of the mountain. Her son said this, with wrinkles as deep and extensive as any of I've seen on a human face, she was a beautiful woman. And here's my favorite part from John Piper. For the last 20 years of her life, she refused to have a mirror in her house. She was consumed with ministry, not mirrors, not self. A co-worker once said that Granny Brand was more alive than any person he had ever met. There's the antidote to vanity. 95, and her husband died at 44, and went through all that nonsense, malaria, broken hip, broken arm, lots of malaria, lots of sickness, lots of challenges, an eight-foot hut. It's, it's incredible what she did. Um, but but the, the beauty is, is not so much in how she looks, but who she is. And uh, she was wrinkled but beautiful, and that's what matters. What is it? First Samuel 16, 7, if you're taking notes tonight. God sees not as man sees. Man sees with the outward appearance, but God sees with the heart. All right, on to chapter 9, as fun as this is. Now, this is the most important chapter of the book, and it, it bears uh, tremendous attention at so many levels. But what I want to make sure to start with is just to remind you of the importance of uh, McDonald himself to Lewis. He said about McDonald, do you remember this? That no one was closer to Christ outside of Christ than, than McDonald for him. Here's two quotes from him, the second of which I've not read to you. The first one I read the first class. This is about his mentor, who lived from 1824 to 1905, the fantasy writer, Scottish minister George MacDonald. I dare not say that he's never in error, but to speak plainly, I know hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continuously close to the spirit of Christ himself. His Christ-like union of tenderness and severity, nowhere else outside the New Testament have I found terror and comfort so intertwined. And then my favorite thing that he wrote about MacDonald is he, he, he did an anthology of MacDonald's stories and he wrote the preface. So this is his chance as the literary genius as he was to introduce MacDonald to the world. And he says all these wonderful things about MacDonald, but what he, what he says above all is what happened to him as a result of MacDonald is what they need to realize could happen to them. And that is MacDonald was actually a brilliant myth-teller. He was a fantasist. His ability to come up with imagery and story was beyond spectacular. As a writer, as Lewis himself says, he was maybe second order or even maybe third. But that didn't matter because the, the stories he told were so compelling and they so captured the imagination that they were life-changing. So here's, here's Lewis speaking about MacDonald in the anthology, in the preface, in his own words. Myth-telling myth may be one of the greatest arts, for it produces works which give us as much delight, as much wisdom, and as much strength as the works of the greatest poets. It is in some ways more akin to music than to poetry, or at least most poetry. It goes beyond the expressions of things we have already felt. Now listen to this language. This is amazing stuff. This is Lewis at his very best. It arouses us in, sensa in us sensations we've never had before, never anticipated having, as though we had broken out of our normal mode of consciousness and possessed joys not promised to our birth. 
it gets under our skin. It hits us at a level deeper than our thoughts and even than our passions. It troubles our oldest certainties till all questions are reopened and in general shocks us more fully awake than we are for most of the rest of our lives. That's McDonald for Lewis. That is one heck of a statement. And he says, as a storyteller, he's, he's the best I've ever met or read. And coming from Lewis, that counts for something. So the story begins, and you get this great encounter with this, this Gandalf-like guy. And we really get into it in terms of the theology of what's going on in this book. And of course, big surprise, it's the Scottish whiz storyteller who gets to give us all the answers. Now, I want to make sure to read the opening paragraph because I just love the way that the encounter is, is told. And I should also say here, he's got Dante all in the back of his mind. Uh, Virgil leads him through, but if you know your, your uh, divine comedy really well, you know that it, there's this beautiful woman, Beatrice, who's one, of, who's one of his key kind of muses that leads him. And so this is the kind of Beatrice-like, Virgil-like figure for Dante. And of course, he picks his mentor, "'Where are we going?' said a voice with a strong Scotch accent. I stopped and looked. The sound of the unicorns had long died away, and my flight had brought me to open country. I saw the mountains where the unchanging sunrise lay. Everybody see where I am? Beginning of chapter 9. And in the foreground, two or three pines on a little knoll with some large, smooth rocks and heather. On one of the rocks sat a very tall man, almost a giant, with a flowing beard.' And then this lovely detail, I had not yet looked one of the solid people in the face. Now, when I did so, I discovered that one sees them with a kind of double vision. Here was enthroned, here was an enthroned and shining God whose ageless spirit weighed upon mine like a burden of solid gold. And yet, at the same moment, here was an old weather-beaten man who one might have thought a shepherd, such a man as Taurus would think is, who is simple because he is honest, but his neighbors think he is deep for the same reason. His eyes had the far-seeing look of one who has lived long in open and solitary places, and somehow I divined the network of wrinkles which must have surrounded them before rebirth had washed him an immortality. I, I don't quite know, said I. You can sit and talk to me then, he said, making room for me on the stone. I don't know you, sir, said I, taking my seat beside him. My name is George, George MacDonald. Oh, I cried, then you can tell me. You at least will not deceive me. Now, I want to make sure that you appreciate this in the context of the story. See, this comes after the hard-bitten ghost and all that sowing of cynicism. And remember, he's worried he doesn't know who to trust. He, do, he, he, he doesn't know if he actually deserves to be there. He doesn't know the precise nature of the journey. And now he's me- meeting the ultimate trusted guide at exactly the right time. The one thing he knows about George MacDonald is he's going to tell him the truth. And then he, then he gets into this detailed explanation of all how great he was, which we're going to bypass. Mm-hmm. Son, your love at the going on to the next paragraph, is of inexpressible value to me, but it may save precious time if I inform ye that I am already well acquainted with my own biographical details. (laughs) Now, what you get as the story unfolds is this detailed conversation, and we're back to class one, and you have the reference to the refrigerium. Everybody see where I am? And you now know what that means, right? So now we have... What the book is doing, which is, it's, it's clear that the gray town is hell. It's clear that the um, great country with the awesome speaking waterfall is heaven. And it's clear that the bus ride is one of these temporary holidays. But what's up in the air is, what exactly is going on? Because it seems, at least in part, possibly confusing. And so here we go, and we get our theology. And what's going on here is Lewis's theology of hell as, as clearly as you can get it, I think. So Lewis says there's a problem, which is if, it's a, if, if, this is a really, if this is a trip and you have choice, and it seems like these people have choice, then can you actually choose not to go back and to stay? In which case, that means that there's a second chance or 
is there not a second chance? You see where I am? Is there really a way of hell, a way out of hell into heaven? That's, I think it's, you got you to give Lewis credit. That's a good question, right? And, and part of the reason you need to appreciate the question is the, the Christian tradition is very clear. No. <laughs> and remember, this is a supposal. Now, for those of you who are note takers, take down uh, Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed for man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So it's very clear in the Christian tradition that this life is the theater of God's redemptive activity. History, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, is his story. So history is the theater of God's salvific work. God made the world. God sent his son to, to die to redeem the world. God's coming back to the world to judge and recreate the world, right? As I never tire of pointing out to people, Luke 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? Can you finish it? On the earth. <laughs> so where's Jesus coming back? Not to some crazy... He's coming back here to the earth that he made. So this is a very earth-centered theology. It's a very historically-centered theology. If that's true, if it's appointed to man once to die and after this the judgment, how can Lewis's supposal make sense? Well, I appreciate you asking the question. Lewis is, Lewis is the one who's asking the question. But, but it... it it is important to try to think through what Lewis is actually trying to get at. So here's, here's his great mentor, and he's going to help us out. Thank goodness. He says, it depends on how you're using the words. If they leave the gray town behind, it will not have been hell. To any that leaves it, it is purgatory. Now, for those of you who are hard Protestants, that may cause your hair to go on end. I'm... I, uh, I'm not a big fan of purgatory. Uh, for those of you who know your 39 articles well, the 39 articles about purgatory say it is a vain thing fondly invented, which is quite a statement to make about an aspect of Roman Catholic theology in the Reformation period. But what you need to understand about Lewis is Lewis does not have a 16th century Roman Catholic understanding of purgatory. We can't get way into it now because I'll never finish on chapter 9 and we'll never finish this class. But what, whatever purgatory is for Lewis, it's not this crazy caricatured thing of um, as long as a, a person puts a coin in, in the canister, as Luther, Luther, the song in Luther's town was, whenever a coin at the bottom of the collection rings, a, pole, a soul from purgatory springs. It just drove Luther crazy. It's, it's not, that's not Lewis's understanding of purgatory at all. He did believe in purgatory, and we, we're going to get there maybe in another class, or Jesus may come back first. To any that leaves it, it is purgatory, and perhaps you'd better not call this country heaven, not deep heaven, you understand. You can call it the valley of the shadow of life. Now, you know where that's from. That's a lovely play off Psalm 23, isn't it? So you've got the valley of the shadow of death, and he's, he's, he's made up a heaven where it's kind of got this kind of borderline, and the borderline is the valley of the shadow of life, which is just a fantastic, typical of Lewis, just brilliant inversion of Psalm 23, as part of his sort of world that he's concocted out of his imagination. But to those who remain there will have been hell even from the beginning. Son, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. When Anadas looked through the door of the timeless, he brought no message back. But you can get some likeness if you say that both good and evil, when they're full grown, become retrospective. Now, this is where it gets really tough, and I'm going to give it a try, because this is an important part of the book that you've got to understand. So Lewis is interested in two things. He's interested in choice, and he's interested in time. And the important, we, I think we've done plenty in the class on choice, but what we haven't spent a lot of time on is Lewis's theology of time. And here's what you need to understand. For Lewis, um, God lives beyond time. <clears throat> God is timeless. God actually created time. And so for uh, God, to use one, one theologian's phrase, everything is the eternal now. So he sees all moments simultaneously. 
And it's very hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but you can't make sense of what's going on in this book unless you understand Lewis's theology of time. So to borrow one of hundreds of illustrations, we'll use uh, flatland. So um, if you've ever, some of you in school might have had the exercise where you make up a character who's basically a piece of paper that's laminated. Some, sometimes he was called Flat Stanley. Did anybody ever do this? They used to, he actually used to do this in school. They're trying to teach people about dimensions. So, and this, actually, this is actually true. You look this up. In the 40s and 50s, back when schools actually taught people things. Oops, sorry. <laughs> they seemed to teach people better in many ways. But in any case, but, but they would do Flat Stanley. And Flat Stanley, they would actually send home with the kids. They'd take a piece of paper, they'd laminate it, and they'd send it home with the kids. And you'd take it with you on your va- when you had a break. So the ki- and the kids would bring back a picture of... Niagara Falls with their family on vacation with Flat Stanley, which was a laminated piece of paper. Now, the whole point is, and the point when the class reconvened is, what did Flat Stanley see at Niagara Falls? That was the question. It's actually quite good exercise. And the whole point is, he saw water and spray. (laughs) If you're lucky, spray. The point is, Flat Stanley lives in two dimensions, not three. And so Niagara Falls is just water and spray, and actually not very much water, not very much spray, just all on that, on that two-dimensional plane with that laminated piece of paper, and then you'd have to take it and point it in different directions. But the point is, if you, if you look, I mean, it's so much more than that, and, and what Lewis is trying to get you to understand is, if you're going to understand God and time, it's like that. Our perspective on time is like Flat Stanley's perspective on Niagara Falls. And if you don't get that, this book is going to be really strange and hard to get at. And that's what he's talking about when it says, when Anodos looked through the door of the timeless, he brought no message back. So, what you end up with in this book, and then I think, I'll, I think we'll take questions because 9 is such a hard chapter, and I'll stop at 9. But, but, but essentially what you get is, actually, almost everybody in this book, and we'll see this at the end, there's only one character who actually ends up with a kind of a purgation thing, he gets purged of this thing that he's trying desperately to bring with him into heaven, and he actually makes it. But he's the only one. Everybody else prefers hell. So actually, on the bus ride, with one exception, everybody that comes on the bus ride, I mean, you got, they, they all fall off for different reasons, right? you got a whole group that stays with the bus because they won't even leave the bus because it's so terrifying and insipid and not interesting and scary and they're afraid. But, but the point is, even the ones who talk to the bright spirits, they, whatever it is that they're clinging to that's not God, which is nevertheless God for them, they insist on keeping no matter what, right? What's, what does Milton have Satan say after he gets thrown out of heaven, Paradise Lost Book 1? Better to reign in hell, right, and to serve in heaven. And, and they, they won't give it up. But, so there's one, just one, who actually makes it all the way and gets purged of something. And so there's a sense in which for that person, the bus ride is purgatory, which is why you have the reference here. But for everybody else, it, 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 they, they just return to who they are. And it's just a question of what God they've actually decided to serve. So how do you make it make sense? I think you make it make sense very easily because what, what Lewis is trying to get you to understand is different, everybody goes from this world to the next on a certain trajectory, and the trajectory is not a trajectory that they get on the last day of their life and the last thing that they do. It's, it's an accumulation of a whole set of choices over a whole set of years and habits and lifestyle and all that thing, but, but they go from this life to the next on a certain trajectory. And that trajectory, actually, if you follow this narrative very closely, doesn't change. So Lewis is not teaching at any point in this book a second chance. What he's trying to get you to see is how incredibly important the choices people make are and how almost limitless our capacity is to make idols out of something that's not God. And almost anything will do. Even the woman who lives through her husband... You remember the line, I didn't get to do chapter 10, but you remember what she says at the end? She says, I, I must have something to, I must have someone to do something to, <laughs> right? One of my friends, when he was at a dinner party, um, this, this guy was there with his wife, and he, when he described the scene to me, he said, the man was like a seeing-eye dog, and uh, his wife was guiding him through the, 
the, the party, and, and she was introduced. Now, honey, here are these people, and here are these people. So he just kind of had his hands on her shoulders, and she was kind of guiding him through the party. It was that kind of, she literally lived through her husband. It was that kind of a thing. But, but the point is, somebody like that actually can be somebody who makes that relationship and making that person do what they want, their God. And that's what she did. It can be almost anything. So do you see how it makes sense? It actually isn't teaching a second chance. It's teaching in a very harrowing way that the choices we make have eternal consequences and that this life is very much extended into the next, which has been one of the themes of the class. All right, I'll stop. Didn't make it to chapter 10. It's okay. I I had to say a bunch about chapter 9. Comments or questions from you on 7, 8, especially 9. Does anybody want to say anything about shame? Because I didn't really get a chance to touch on that, but I, I wanted to make sure to come back to it. It's, it's almost evanesced from our culture in a good way, and the only thing that matters is kind of group shame for not doing the right thing according to the, 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 the group at that particular day. And there's all this social pressure through social media, but shame traditionally is actually a good thing. Shame is what prevents a politician from texting a woman sexed photos. <laughs> and it used to be understood in culture that shame had a positive thing. It's not easy to deal with because just like the character says, you have to drink it down to the drugs. But it, actu- it actually is a good thing. It's, it keeps us from destroying the environment. It keeps us from doing things that block God's best for us. And in a secular consumer society, we have constant invitations to do things of which we should be ashamed and I think we need to hear that, that message very loudly. Positive thinking about yourself, no matter what you do, is not going to cut it in a, in a theological world where shame can be a good thing. There are some things of which a person needs to be ashamed. Jesus made that very clear. In the wedding garment story, the person who's there without a wedding garment is very ashamed. And they ought to be, because you can't come in without a wedding garment. That's the conditions. And so, so shame can be a good thing. I think that's a really powerful part of the lessons. Other comments? Yes, Paul, go ahead, please. He does. Right. It, it, yeah, but it, it, do, it does. I mean, the unicorns kind of end the scene, and she seems addicted to not doing what he wants. But he's, he's kind of laid the groundwork for the fact that if she just drink the hard drink of shame all the way to the bottom, it actually has a positive outcome. I think that's a good way to look at it. Yes, sir. Exactly what I was saying about um, Flat Stanley. uh, The question is, what does he mean by saying you can't fully understand choice and time until you're beyond both? Here's a good way to think of it, Um, and I like to use Lewis to teach Lewis. So um, for those of you who are Chronicles of Narnia people and you know uh, the horse and his boy really well, there's a terrific scene toward the end, and um, Shasta is... He's just full of self-pity, and he's just sitting there, and all these terrible things have gone wrong in his life. And he just, and there's four or five very, very graphic big examples. And there's this kind of breath and this voice. And when Aslan finally speaks to Shasta, you know, Shasta's just expressed four or five totally devastating things that have happened in his life. And he's really disillusioned and really sad. And Shasta says... Sorry, Aslan says to Shasta, I do not consider you unfortunate. And then he proceeds to redo all of the stories, every single one, from a totally different perspective. So, for example, 
the first thing that happens in the book is you've got this, this horrible uh, situation domestically that he grows up in, where, which is very unpleasant. And he actually got, um, you know, he ended up just basically coming out of this boat in the sea to this terrible house. And actually, uh, what Aslan explains is, actually he was going to die in the boat, and Aslan pushed him to the shore. And he was actually rescued, and that was actually all deliberate uh, to get him the start that he needed. So, so what happens, here, here's the thing is, what happens is when Aslan is done, every single one of those stories is now seen retrospectively in a completely different way. But, but the problem Shasta has is he's, he's not looking at it from Aslan's, i.e. God's, point of view. And we can't, that's the thing. So, so, and, and Lewis is making this point in the, in the book is there's a profound sense in which when you get to heaven, everything, even all the pain and the agony, it will all look differently retrospectively in the light of the light of the goodness of God. That's, that's what he's trying to get at. And that's, that's Lewis illuminating Lewis. So. Okay, thank you so much for persevering through five classes. We'll try to finish up next time. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.